Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational Chic Geek live from Yancey Street. After taking a week off for what I'll call fall break last week, I am back with episode 42A. Today is the 29th of November, it is a Monday, and the episode is going to be chock full of stuff that is super exciting to talk about. There's some really neat information all through the episode, so make sure you stick around to catch all of that. But we're going to start off, like usual, with the news. The news is going to include a number of minor No Way Home updates before one very large Spider-Man franchise update, very small Matt Reeves the Batman update, uh, some brief discussion on the Millar World Super Crooks Netflix anime. I'm, is it Millar or is it Miller? I'll never get that straight in my head. And then some sad discussion, but slightly hopeful about the cancellation of the three-issue Luke Cage City of Fire series. This episode is going to contain a pick list and a pull list. The pick list is going to come first, and that will be covering comics that came out last week on the 23rd for DC Comics or the 24th for the rest of the comics. And just as a preview, we're going to be discussing the first issue of John Ridley's Black Panther, as well as the death of Doctor Strange, the final issue of Decorum, and some really other cool stuff, especially including why I will not be continuing reading Jerry Duggan's X-Men. And then we'll move on to the pull list, which is going to be previewing comics that are going to be coming out this Tuesday, which is tomorrow the 30th, or Wednesday on December 1st. There's some really cool stuff here, including some excellent number ones, a few very intriguing one-shots, an annual or two, and some just really other cool stuff that I'm super excited to read when it comes out this week. So I'm excited to tell you all about what those are going to be. With the comic book material, for the most part, out of the way, we will jump right into the premiere of Hawkeye on Disney+. Plus. They put down episodes one and two last Wednesday, and I will be covering all of that. Um, if you didn't understand bits of it, uh, I will, I'm certainly, be, I'm certainly sure I'll be able to clarify any th questions that you have for you. And I'll also be sput putting in randomly throughout the two episodes discussion, uh, well, not randomly, when, when it's relevant, I'll be putting in comic book, um, comic book counterparts and concepts and things that they've taken and put in the show and a lot of that is going to lead into who these characters are going to turn out to be their superhero identities their super villain identities really cool comic book references easter eggs things like that and then to keep everybody's expectations and the reality of all of this in check, the Hawkeye discussion is going to finish with what I'm calling the Fraction AHA count. Now Matt Fraction and David AHA they may not have created the characters of Hawkeye or Kate Bishop, that is Clint Barton or Kate Bishop, but this run of this Hawkeye series, this live action series, is in majority based off of their run. And so I'm going to go through and point out all of the different things of which I have clumped together into groups, of which there are eight different groups that I'm going to be going through and discussing what Disney has taken from that Hawkeye run from Matt Fraction and David Aha and not paid them a goddamn dime for putting in this show. And we'll probably be only halfway through the episode at that point because we also are going to be discussing the Netflix live action Cowboy Bebop. We watched this over the weekend, over the past week. 
We'll talk thoughts. Uh, there's been a lot of feedback from a lot of different sides, but I will talk what I think, my feedback, and if you're looking to watch the show, maybe that'll help you make a decision on that one. But the episode is going to wrap up with what I'm calling the uh, uh, She-Hulk Ceremony Thanksgiving Special, I suppose. Uh, it's going to be going over the story of She-Hulk Ceremony, which was two prestige size issues published in 1990 that are highly intertwined with indigenous native lives and progress in the U.S. And it, I kind of pulled it out last week, not really thinking about the relevance and come Thursday, um, if you may have celebrated Thanksgiving, I realized how just how relevant these issues are, including a specific character who is one of the main characters in this series, Wyatt Wingfoot. Um, and I'll be going over everything you need to know about Wyatt Wingfoot. He is a really cool indigenous character. Um, and I definitely expect to see him in the MCU at some point. And I will go over all of why we are going to be seeing him in the MCU. And I can pretty much guarantee we'll be seeing him in the MCU. Uh, another thing we're going to be discussing about She-Hulk ceremony, aside from the plot and Wyatt Wingfoot um, and his history, is the history of the comic itself. Um, it was published around the same time as John Byrne's Sensational She-Hulk. And there is a big big load of drama that comes from that history. So uh, I will be discussing the whole John Byrne versus Brian McDuffie, the two creators on these two different She-Hulk series, um, and why that they butted heads so much and what it was about the character that they disagreed on, and then my opinion on all of that drama from a modern standpoint. Oh, and that will be the episode. I, it is going to be very long. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be going over everything about the plot of She-Hulk Ceremony or just giving a brief rundown. <laughs> my voice might be kind of dying by that point, so we'll kind of see how it goes. Um, but I will have my podcast notes of this episode posted as soon as I post the episode on my website, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. So if you do want to see my full plot rundown with all relevant details of since of the She-Hulk ceremony two issues that it did run. Uh, it was only meant to be two issues. So um, that will all be on my pod on my website in my podcast notes for today's podcast. So you can check that out. I edited, edited it as much as I could while I was rereading the series. So it was fresh. Um, and I tried to put in as much commentary as I could to make things make sense in our modern reader eyes. So that'll be at the end of the episode. But before we get things started here, as usual, I'll give a little rundown of where you can find me on the internet. My Instagram is Anna with the comics because my, my name is Anna. And as I turn around and look at the mess of short boxes behind me, I do have the comics. My Twitter is Savage She Geek. That will be anywhere. That will be the place where you can find any kind of updates on days the podcast will be posted. I try to stick to Mondays and Fridays, but I took the whole of last week off, and sometimes it just gets shifted around a day or two. So any updates that I have for podcast postings will be on that Twitter. Again, that's Savage She Geek. I already mentioned when I was talking about the She-Hulk ceremony plot rundown that my website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. You have to have the Weebly in there because I do not pay for this site. Uh, and that is where you can find, as I mentioned about She-Hulk ceremony, um, the 
podcast notes for all of my podcast episodes. I've got them all updated over the weekend. Um, so if you want to go through and reference anything from the podcast without going back and listening to it, you can do so in the podcast notes. And it's also available there for anyone who is hearing impaired who would like to keep up with the podcast events as well. Before I started the podcast, I really wrote I, like educational essays practically about comic books um, in the sense in the way that I now talk about them. But I, I wrote all of this uh, reviews and discussions and pick lists and pull lists are all available from pre-podcast days on my blog, my website there again, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. And if you are at all interested in some female characters who are going to be coming up in the Marvel universes, plural, because uh, Clea is going to be in the MCU and Madeline and Ileana are going to be very relevant in the uh, Marvel Comics universe soon. I have for those three characters, uh, well, for, Ma for Madeline and Clea, I have their entire, entire character appearance history um summarized basically um issue by issue every single one of them it takes for madeline it takes it takes probably less than two hours to go through and read and there you go you have now read everything that madeline Pryor has ever appeared in so if you'd like to get a refresh on her character before she comes back in december which i am so stoked for um you can do that. That is literally everything about her is in there. Um, with Ileana, hers is a little bit... <laughs> she has thousands of appearances to Madeline's, I think, 200. So uh, Ileana's is a little bit less in-depth, but all of her major appearances are there. And I did do a vast amount of issue summaries. So you can go check that out as well. And for Clea, she will be appearing in Multiverse of Madness. You can pretty much guarantee that in the Doctor Strange sequel. So if you want to catch up on her character before she appears there, and she has made a, a very recent resurgence into the comics in Death of Doctor Strange recently, if you'd like to know at all about her character, I have Every single one of her character appearances summarized, just like with Madeline, and you can go over that in a number of hours as well if you would like to be very quickly updated on every single issue she has ever appeared in. With that being said, I am, I would say, the foremost authority on Madeline Pryor and Clea, so if you have any questions about them, feel free to ask. The last thing you can find on my website are my links to everywhere that you can listen to this podcast, which is most places you can listen to podcasts, and that does include YouTube. I have all of the videos uploaded, uploaded, uploaded in one playlist, so you can find them all in order there. Also on my YouTube, I post action figure review videos because I'm a giant nerd. Um, I have the 2020 HasLab Marvel Legends Sentinel video posted up there, the unboxing and reveal for him. He's pretty cool. And I have the Marvel Legends Tigra slash Greer Grant Nelson, however you want to name her. Uh, she is posted as well. And then I also recently did the Shadow Meow Skulls from Fortnite, and those are the most recent reviews that I've done. Plus a, oh, and I, I did Captain Carter too. I forgot about that. Did Captain Carter too. Uh, plus a tour of our toy collection under Blacklight, which was super fun to record. And I do hope that you get some enjoyment out of watching it as well. So make sure you go up there and check out all those reviews, Captain Carter being the most recent one. 
I have a podcast Patreon set up for donations to support the podcast. You can find that under Sensational She Geek on Patreon. I'm working on getting rewards and things um, in place. Once I get a few more people on that, I will be able to start posting more regular updates to it. I also have a Ko-fi cash app, Venmo, PayPal. It's all linked there on my link tree, which appears at the bottom of each episode's description. You should be able to just click the link there wherever you are listening. Um, I did do a little bit of update to my link tree. Uh, So a lot of the social media links and things are all just icons at the top of it now. If you ever show up there looking for it, um, just search for the icon if you can't find it in the written out links. I had mentioned I was working on ordering some stickers. I have not ordered them yet, but I have the order all set up. I know where I'm going to be getting it from. I know how much it's going to cost. It's going to be a thousand stickers on a roll. So send me a message if you would like me to mail you one of my stickers or a bunch of stickers if you promise to put them in geeky public places like your local comic shops or whatever else you have around there. Um send me a message and I will, once I, once I eventually get them in, I would love to send you some of these stickers so that you can advertise with me. I'm really, I have to admit, I am so bad at advertising my own podcast. Um, I just, I, I am so awkward about talking to people about it in person. I'm very sheepish about it. It's not like it's a really big deal. I don't know what my issue is, but if you would like to help support the podcast by uh, advertising it, then that's that's what the stickers would be for, and that would be awesome. Uh, finally, I do have a Redbubble store where I have also linked on my link tree the sticker that says, uh, Woman's Place is in the comic shop. It's a fun little twist on you know, classic sexist themes. (laughs) And it is on Redbubble, so you can get that as a shirt, a mug, a print, whatever possibly you could want. Um, And I have a few other designs like that on the site. You can find them under She Geek Shop. I think that pretty much wraps up the intro and everything you should need to know about what's coming on this podcast episode. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with the news. Um... You can find the rundown of what's going to be in the news in the description if you missed me going over that at the beginning. So let's go ahead and start with the somewhat minor No Way Home updates. This is Spider-Man No Way Home that we're talking here. And we have one, two, three different points here that we're going to talk before we get into the big news. So first off, um, there is, it's kind of a rumor, but it's come from a few different sources. So I'm, I'm, I'm about ready to believe it, that the additional Spider-Men, being the Tobey Maguire and the Andrew Garfield Spider-Men, each have about 30 plus minutes of screen time in Spider-Man No Way Home. This may not seem like a very big deal when you're watching a two hour plus movie. However, that's about the same amount of time that Thor and Captain America each had in Endgame. So it is a pretty big chunk of the movie and I suppose you'll just have to take that as you will because We'll just have to see how that goes. Uh, Another point of the No Way Home minor updates is that the tickets are on sale. There's all kinds of people excited about it, so I'm sure you've already noticed this, but I am laughing, crying, because I'm, oh God, I'm so disappointed and saddened in the universe to report that 
People are reselling No Way Home tickets already. Just as a reminder, this is just a movie, so don't... Don't buy scalp tickets to see Spider-Man. Don't buy scalp movie tickets, period, guys. We're trying to stop capitalism here, not buy into it more, remember? It's just a movie. Yeah, if you don't see it the first showing, you're probably going to get spoiled, but we pretty much know what's going to happen in this movie at this point. I Maybe I'm just being flippant. I don't know. Let's move on to the third point of news that we have for, for No Way Home, and that is apparently, now this is an apparently, so this is going to be, you know, allegedly this is like a rumor. This is something that somebody said that, you know, could be true or not. There's a friend who is a friend, is a person who is a friend of Jared Leto's who says that he texted him about the various No Way Home clips and trailers that have been going out in the past few weeks and that he responded, it was the only response he gave, that the purple stuff, I guess it's purple, that Doctor Strange in one of these clips or trailers or whatever, he says that he can't hold them back anymore. He's referring to that purple stuff being the Sony-verse. That's not confirmed, but it seems to make a lot of sense, obviously, based on pretty much everything that we've already seen. But it does still leave me wondering, these two Spider-Men who we're seeing being Garfield and Maguire aren't the Sony ver- like the Sony-verse Spider-Men that we see in those movies, right? They're just some other Spider-Men from parallel universes, I think, right? That's how they would then get away with their villains and I suppose them as well, having somewhat different stories than the movies who we saw those actors in before. So those aren't those exact Spider-Men. Um, they're just from other parts of the universe. So then that makes me question if the Sony-verse is being pulled in, who is the Spider-Man of the Sony-verse? Was it, I, we assume there is one, right? Because, I mean, Sony-verse. But is that wrong? Is, is, is there no one Spider-Man of the Sony-verse? There's just all these parallel Sony-verses and... But then the Sony-verse is crashing in with the MCU. I just end up in this big loop of questions. <laughs> and they don't really get me anywhere. So let's move on. We'll see it all eventually. Um, so next up is the big Spider-Man franchise news. Now this will be exciting for some people. The producer of the Spider-Man franchise that we are currently seeing big name in Sony Marvel stuff. Amy Pascal had a interview with Fandango today, or yes, whenever it was recently, but it went out on the internet today, confirming that there is another Spider-Man movie in the works with Tom Holland specifically, which they do plan on being part of another trilogy. To get what she actually said about this, here's the quote that Fandango put on their website. Fandango spoke with producer Amy Pascal, who was not only an integral part of the earlier Spider-Man film franchises starring Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, but she was also a key figure in negotiating the game-changing collaboration between Sony Pictures, which owns the film rights for Spider-Man, and Marvel Studios, which makes films and TV shows for Disney's Marvel Cinematic Universe. Pascal was quick to confirm that Sony will continue to collaborate with Marvel Studios on Spider-Man movies, and those movies will indeed star Tom Holland. That was what Fandango had to say. Now, for her actual quote from Amy Pascal, 
this is not the last movie that we are going to make with Marvel. Not the last Spider-Man movie. We are going, we are getting ready to make the next Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland and Marvel. We're thinking of this as three films and now we're going into the next three. This is not the last of our MCU movies. That's pretty exciting. Um, I'm just kind of going to take No Way Home as a fluke that this audience reaction of just honestly somewhat very cringy Spider-Man or die, like the holy trinity of Spider-Man. I I don't know. It freaks me out. People are so obsessed with this. Um, Life (laughs) goes on. And that's coming from me, a person who literally has a podcast about comic books and comic book culture. Um... But this is pretty legitimately exciting. Um, For a long time, it's been very uncertain if we're going to be getting anything additionally with Spider-Man in the official MCU, or if it was all just going to get sucked back into just doing Sony stuff. And this seems to be a pretty definitive answer to that, and that is really relieving and pretty darn exciting. Understandably, a lot of people are making assumptions already. Um, I can't really give them... I, I can't really give them flack for this assum- this particular assumption I'm going to mention because it does make sense. Um, since Pascal did mention that this is a trilogy and they're going to move on and do a second trilogy, I'm trying not to make Star Wars connections because we know how that goes, but um, people are making the assumption that I kind of agree with that the next trilogy is going to be the college trilogy. Um, and there's going to be characters like Gwen Stacy and all that who are going to be brought in. And that, I can't help but admit that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't honestly know how they would handle that or if it would end up being just more of what we've seen the audience reaction from in this movie. And I'm just going to keep getting Spider-Man fatigue for the rest of my life, I guess. But um, I don't know. I, I like, we obviously love to be hopeful about these things and I would love to see an MCU proper Spider-Man as he grows beyond high school, you know? Let the kid grow. Finally, I just want to mention a few things that Amy Pascal said about the upcoming No Way Home movie. I read the whole interview between her and Fandango, um, and a few of the little quotes that I have for you include... The movie has everything that people have to come to expect from a Spider-Man movie. All the spectacle, all the heart, but at the same time, as expansive as it is, it's always a very intimate story that is about Peter Parker and his heart. And then she has a quote. I would say that it's the culmination of the Homecoming trilogy of the story of Tom Holland becoming the Spider-Man that we've all been waiting for him to be. I feel like that's a really good hopeful one for us as well. And then we have... They talking about all the actors who came back from previous movies. She says, they all love playing those characters in the past and there was not a one of them who wasn't sign me up. So that's also a nice thing to hopefully be true. She then confirms specifically, yes, Marvel and Sony are going to keep going together as partners. She says, the parallel universes make for so many interesting stories, but I don't think every single movie is going to end up taking place in the multiverse. That was kind of talking about Into the Spider-Verse and other multiversal versions of things that have appeared over there at Sony. It's not all going to appear, and that's really understandable. That gets to be a bit much at a certain point. And the last quote I have from her here is, 
Fandango asks, how are things going on that second Spider-Verse movie? And she responds, it's going to be fantastic. And she also says, we have something to show on that very soon. So hopefully we'll be getting um, an update with the second Spider-Verse movie soon, which is also very exciting. All in all, this is probably the most positive Spider-Man interview that has come out in the 20 years of Spider-Man movies we've been seeing. This is good stuff. We love to see it. Now my news on Matt Reeves's Reeves's The Batman is admittedly quite minor and more minor than the Spider-Man updates I had earlier. And that is the runtime for The Batman is going to be a whopping two hours and 45 minutes. That's pretty long. I should have probably looked up and see like some movie times to compare it to, but um, that's longer than your average MCU movie for sure. Uh, I think you get just above two hours for the average MCU movie. It's that, that's, that feels about right in my head. I could be totally wrong. I really should have looked that up. But yeah, two hours, 45 minutes of Matt Reeves' The Batman. Uh, based on everything we've seen of that, this is excellent news. Now, regarding the Millar, Miller, Millar World Super Crooks, the Netflix anime edition. It is fully up on Netflix as an anime take of the original comic, which was by Mark Millar, Miller Millar, somebody tell me please, and Lionel Francis Yu, who is Filipino, which I love to shout out to because my husband is Filipino as well. You know, there's actually a stunning amount of like unbelievably good Filipino artists who work in the comics industry. Um, I can't think of a single name off the top of my head of anybody right now, but look it up. There's a bunch. <laughs> what my point, what I want to say here is, um, I did watch a little bit of Super Crooks on Netflix, uh, knowing absolutely nothing about it, uh, or about the original material or anything like that. I honestly didn't even realize that it was this Millar world thing until they mentioned the other Netflix series they did for them, the live action Jupiter's legacy series. That was kind of meh to be honest, but well, I didn't, I didn't get too far in this anime. I will admit that. Uh, cause I've, I've been watching a lot of stuff. There's been a lot of stuff to watch. I've uh, just, there's a lot out there. It's, you know, and Christmas cheesy stuff too. So tis the season. Uh, it is worth noting you know, I don't know too much about the the book or anything. It's worth noting I do follow Lionel Francis Yu on Instagram and he has been posting a lot of behind the scenes about the new designs and characters that they created, being him and Millar, specifically just for this anime remake. So if you've read the book, I'm guessing that this is not going to be a whole ton like the original product. So don't go in expecting that. They created original looks and characters for this. But make sure to check out um, his 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 online, his socials, and probably Millar's too, if you want to get more info on these new additions that they created for Super Crooks, because they look, there's some pretty cool designs, admittedly. And hopefully I will get back to watching that, um, you know, at some point. I haven't even finished Cowboy Bebop, there was so much going on. <laughs> Most of this news has been very positive and exciting, and I'm sorry now I have to bring in the Bummer, although there is like the tiniest little asterisk to the end of that that says hope. Uh, and that bummer news is that Luke Cage, City of Fire, the three issues tying into Devil's Reign has been apparently canceled. Um, it was tying into Devil's Reign, like I said, it was going to be, it, well, it was, it is written by writer Hoche Anderson. 
um, who says that this has been canceled by Marvel a month before launch. The art roster included a rotating um, list of people, including, let's see, we have Farid Karami and Ray Anthony Height and Sean Damian Hill. And I'm sure I mispronounced somebody's name in there, so I apologize for that. But those would have been issues one, two, and three, the artists on those respectively. The first issue was scheduled to hit comic shops on the 29th of December. That's literally one month from today. Uh, it had a front, uh, had a first order cutoff date of November 15th, which is over two weeks ago. It is long past. Um, and it was initially pushed back from its first announced release date of October. On that sense, my theory about that was that they just wanted to make sure it tied better into Devil's Reign. I don't think there's any reason to think that this that pushback connects to this cancellation at all. If you want to know what Anderson had to say about the series, it's a bit... Ups I feel this. I feel this deeply because I was so looking forward to this. But here's what he wrote on his Instagram. He says, Man plans, God laughs. No easy way to say this. I got the word Luke Cage got cancelled this morning, one month away from its premiere. The scripts are all written. The first issue is done and it is a thing of absolute beauty. Issues two and three are in deep are deep into production. Covers have been drawn. People have gotten excited and with good reason as far as I'm concerned. I remain as proud of this work as any I've done. Maybe someday it will be seen. But as of today, this comic is dead in the water. If you want answers, I am not the man to ask. My heart is broken. I'm taking a social media break to lick my wounds. Somewhere, God is having a chuckle. Enjoy it. Uh, you can, you can, ugh, that, it just, it's upsetting to read that just because I empathize so much. I was so looking forward to this. And let me remind you here, what the story is about. I refuse to write was, I refuse to say was, because this bitch is written, it exists, it is out there, it is completed. It is just, it is ready to be seen, but let's, let's go over the solicitation of the first issue. It says, when a black man is murdered by a police officer in New York City, Luke Cage is called to action. But what does a good man do when protecting the streets put him at, puts him at odds with his own people? A cadre, cadre, oh my god, I don't know what the word is, of crooked cops named the Regulators are out to terrorize ordinary citizens and with Daredevil determined to bring them down no matter the cost and Mayor Fisk equally determined to use them to tighten his grip on the city, it's up to Cage to keep the city from completely going up in flames. Joined by an exciting lineup of artists, and they list the artists here. Celebrated creator Hoche Anderson, and they list King, a comics biography of Martin Luther King Jr., as well as Scream King in his works, makes his Marvel debut with an ambitious, hard-hitting story unlike any you've seen in the 616. Change is coming, and it starts here. Let me reread that first sentence of that solicit for a second. When a black man is murdered by a police officer in New York City, Luke Cage is called to action. You can really, really empathize with creators after reading all of that, such as David F. Walker, who is a surprised, a surprised, oh my god, a celebrated, he's a very celebrated former writer of Luke Cage by way of the Power Man and Iron Fist series from a few years ago. 
you can very much empathize with curators like him when they respond to this news of this cancellation with the understanding that this has happened because someone really high up at Marvel or Disney got wind of what this comic was about and they killed it. Probably someone who is normally completely clueless of the goings on of the comic department just randomly came into their ears and they didn't approve of where this was going. If anything, that makes it even more messed up. And you can check Walker's Twitter for more of his thoughts on that if you're curious. This series is necessary. For starters, it is Luke Cage's 50th anniversary in 2022. Come on, man. And it would take a true dummy to read or hear that solicitation and not see the massive glaring parallels to our modern world, which I'm sure is why that supposed mystery exec killed it and exactly why it is so necessary. It's sparked the debate about Disney Marvel simply showcasing values and morals instead of actually following through and acting on them. And that is the nicest way I could think to phrase that. Anderson did write an update on his Instagram after the audience response. He says, just wanted to express my gratitude and surprise, quite frankly, at the outpouring of support that came out my way in the wake of what happened with our Luke Cage miniseries, just as it was traveling down the birth canal. I am genuinely touched and so, so appreciative y'all have my back. It means the world to me. And who knows, maybe the comic gods will see fit to rain their grace down upon us and eventually release the work of myself and my incredibly talented collaborators. Onward and upward. And then we have an update, somewhat update. Um, I found this, I was doing a little research between Newsarama and GamesRadar, and apparently Newsarama's sources indicate that the City of Firebook was removed from Marvel's schedule due to production and scheduling issues inside the publisher, which they say is a situation that seems very familiar with a recent swath of other delays at Marvel for other titles. They say why these books were delayed, they remained on Marvel's schedule, and they claim that City of Fire is uniquely in that same limbo. However, when I was looking at that, those other titles, according to what I found between, like I said, Newsarama and GamesRadar, seem to be only about a week off of what they were originally put through for. And I doubt that Anderson, you know, I doubt anybody would have told Anderson that it was over if it was canceled, if it was only just a week delay. Newsarama is a pretty decent news source, but there isn't much more than... There's much more to this than just hopeful speculation at this point of putting together pieces that may not entirely fit into reality. It's really just going to take time to know for sure um, whether this was killed by an unhappy executive or simply indefinitely delayed. Marvel owes it to the history of everyone who has ever related to Luke Cage to see that City of Fire does make it to the shelves. Let's talk picks. Comic book picks. These are things that came out November 23rd and 24th. I have these arranged pretty much in um, preference, I guess. So we'll start off with Black Panther number one. This is by Academy Award winning writer John Ridley. Gotta add that front half of that to remind people how cool he is. And Stormbreaker artist Juan Cabal. Um, Stormbreakers are just... Marvel started this thing in 2020, I think, about like, yeah, we picked these eight or nine artists and we're calling them Stormbreakers because they're like the next generation of 
big names and art. I, I don't, I don't really understand why they did it, but he is one of those. So yay. Um, this was a really good issue. I very much enjoyed it. It started off, it started off really heavy with T'Challa apparently joining the Avengers again as their chairman, aka leader of the team full time, which I was really surprised by, but I figured it would be kind of cool to see him taking on a bigger role of leadership on that team and likely more publicly as well. But by the end of the issue, due to the events that take place, T'Challa actually has to call Captain America and step back from what he promised mere days earlier <laughs> and it's kind of awkward but we are introduced to a couple of undercover wakandans uh, who are in love and meeting in secret when we first meet them but they have been found out and the man in the pair ends up having to sacrifice himself for the woman to get away she gets in touch with t'challa and tells him what happened turns out they weren't just undercover wakandan agents they were warriors waiting as sleeper agents t'challa has sent warriors like these across the globe to wait until the day that might come where Wakanda has to attack other world powers for any reason. Those agents would be there in place ready to kill and disrupt governments, which is pretty wild, but also very reasonable based on knowing all about Wakanda. That seems like something they would definitely have in place. And this did really get me thinking about the possibility of these agents, kind of agents in our own world, sleeper agents just hanging out and waiting for the signal for shit to go down, which I guess is kind of what like, a lot of what the Cold War stuff was about. Oh, uh, history. Uh, another point I found really interesting that really made about T'Challa in this is that he is specifically anti-democracy. He thinks that democracies are too fluid, too dynamic, and therefore too easy to flip-flop against what is actually the best for their people. He also thinks that democracies are time wasters, which... I don't think anybody can argue against. <laughs> the Death of Doctor Strange number three is by Jed McKay with art by Lee Garbett, and I am just really, really thrilled with this. This is better than any of the Doctor Strange stuff that I've read in the past, from the past decade, I would say easily. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of any Doctor Strange I really enjoyed. I guess like the older stuff. <laughs> it had its flaws, but... Oh, man. oh, I know. It was the, uh, was it Donny Cates? Was when he had the war on the, the technology people had the war on him. I really liked that. Uh, who did the art? It wasn't Scotty Young. It was, um, I can't remember, but he has a really nice art style for that. Anyway, Death of Doctor Strange number three. Um, again, you can check out everything you want to know, need to know about Clea on my website. Um, they do explain in this issue having her memories returned to her after then. <laughs> really god-awful from a few years ago Doctor Strange plot where they just kind of were like, yeah, she can't remember you anymore because Mephisto says, okay, which made her the victim, not him, which was really good. Um, th the explanation they gave here was obviously when Strange died, Mephisto gave her memories back. It's a de decent enough explanation. Um, and I like to think that the anger that she has at Steven for having done that at all is coming directly from the writer because that was a god-awful creative decision that they ever made um and i'm really glad that that's not a thing anymore and it is just over so uh clea they also add that she was apparently holed up in the purple dimension most recently which i don't think was necessarily canon 
um, and anything that we knew about until they just mentioned it. So that's a nice little update for her. And we also get to see in this issue the child of the three mothers, which is a bit terrifying, not gonna lie. It's like a giant-headed baby priest. It's, it's really something. Decorum finally finished with issue number eight. This was Jonathan Hickman and Mike Huddleston. And Mike Huddleston is a goddamn artistic genius. <laughs> Unbelievably good. Um, I would 100% encourage you to take up the trade paperback of this series, which I think is coming out in December, um, and read it all in one go. It will make it make a lot easier to make sense than months. I think it was six months between this and the last issue or something ridiculous like that. Um, and there is the unfortunate knowledge that Image did not properly pay Mike Huddleston because he didn't hit their uh, deadline requirements, which if you look at his art, they should have been giving him as long as he needed. His art is worth the wait. Um, but... One thing I wanted to mention about how this all goes down in the end is that the last thing it says in the comic, really cool and so appropriate with how it all goes, is decorum and the womanly art of empire. Oh my gosh, I love, I love that. <laughs> and it does say to be continued, so maybe? <laughs> but Hickman's pretty busy right now with his Three Worlds, Three Moons over at Substack. I get the free version of his information, I, uh, whatever you want to call it. I get the free version of all of that world building stuff they're doing. And I got I can't keep up with it. I would love to, but looking at how much content it's going to be over the course of the next few years, I would probably have to drop... 75% of my other comic pull list just to be able to keep up with the insanity of how much he is developing there with Three Worlds, Three Moons. So if you feel like you can handle something like that, I so encourage you to do that. If not, just pick up Decorum on Trade Paperback when it comes out because that shit is bonkers good. Killer Queen's up... Killer Queens number four came out this week by David M. Boer and Claudia Balboni. This was the final issue, but I do have to admit that I haven't had a chance to read it. But I wanted to mention it because it is the queerest series currently available. Although, let me know if you have another contender in mind. And it's really good. Batman Reptilian number six had its final issue this week. Um... It was pretty bonkers, as expected. We left the last issue with Batman diving into the creature's mouth, and though Batman bursts out of its belly and lives in this issue, the creature also still survives and is taken off to some government facility to be no doubt picked apart for study, and so is Killer Croc, who they would like to learn all about what and who he is and why this has happened, so... There's a funny line that Bat Croc is like, you're going to let them take me away, Batman? And he's like, they'll just think of this as your penance for your years of having too much fun or something like that. And it's really funny. And this was, once again, by Garth Ennis and Liam Sharp. Um, I definitely recommend this one for people who are not going to have nightmares looking at pictures of really creepy reptile monsters. <laughs> Uh, a very brief hashtag Poison Ivy Watch update that I have for this week because she did appear in both Catwoman and Harley Quinn. That's my cat doing her scratchies. 
both of these issues, for whatever reason, seem to have taken place before Batman 117, which came out the previous week. So they were kind of just pointless IV updates. I don't know. It was it was a lot of just basically what happened in Harley Quinn and Catwoman with Harley Catwoman and Ivy was all the same thing. Um, so not really anything to note. Uh, some really cute art between the two of them, but that's that's about all I got for that update. It does seem that the next place we're going to be catching Ivy uh, will be the next Harley Quinn issue. And then after that, unknown. Which is severely frustrating. Why did you put in this past, like, what, three years of development between from Heroes in Crisis to here? How, how, I mean, if you want to go back as far as to the Everybody Loves Ivy run of Tom King's Batman, um, or arc, I suppose, of Tom King's Batman, that's probably at least three years, right? Um, and it's been working. They've been overhauling her character, trying to do something different with her, um, and leading her up to something since then. And now we've made it. And it doesn't really seem to be going anywhere, so whatever. <laughs> now, the least enjoyed comic of the week is X-Men number five, and I would like to discuss here why I did not like it and why I will not be reading any more X-Men after this. So this is by Gary Duggan and Javier Pina. The thing is, <laughs> Gary Duggan writes Marauders, which is an excellent series. Um, go figure. So, the only things that I'll be reading after Inferno and Trial of Magneto are probably going to be New Mutants, anything with Madeline Pryor, and that will be it. This will be a bit of a bitch sesh, so be prepared. But I have really good points, so listen up. Um... <laughs> So we get to this point in the issue towards the end where Emmett and Jean are watching as Scott walks away from them with Ben Urich, who is the reporter. Uh, Jean says that he looks like he's trouble, or says like, that man looks like trouble or something like that. Obviously referring to Ben because he's got stuff up his sleeve. And Emma responds, to which gentleman are you or which gentleman are you referring to? Okay. <laughs> First of all... <laughs> Emma isn't into Scott like that anymore. It has, they have a connection and they have that history and stuff, but she's not, no, she's not flirty. No, no, that's, that's not their dynamic. Um, she had her fun with him and she moved on. Also, she would never, ever refer to these guys as gentlemen. That is not how she talks. Emma doesn't talk like that. And again, Duggan writes Marauders and he has written some of my absolute favorite all-time moments with Emma in that Marauders series. So how the shit is he doing her so poorly in X-Men? To make it worse, when Yurik does approach Scott with a question of, basically, we noticed you're back from the dead. How are mutants doing that? Scott has no response. Um, what? <laughs> you're telling me that with... All of the planning, all of the work, all the foresight that the mutants of Krakoa never considered that they need something to say about the literal one thing that's allowing their society to go on like this. No one considered that. The mutants have long since proved through Hickman's run that they're good. They, they are really good at being on top of their business. 
So how is this the one thing that they are not on top of? The most important thing in their new society. Come on, man. That is so dumb. That's just poor writing. I am still so mad about how they pushed Hickman out. Let me clarify. I do not feel bad for Jonathan Hickman. He is a straight white man who is very wealthy and has a massive following. He will be fine. What I am upset about, um, what I feel bad for, is the stories that he would have given us. And I'm really, really mad about it. <laughs> we literally had it all, and it was only getting better. And now it's just been made so clear that he's not going to have room to come back for the next couple of years, so he probably won't be coming back at all, regardless of what Marvel was kind of telling us at the beginning. He's been on podcast interviews talking about how bummed he was to see their plans without him at the X-Men conference, which they invited him to. What a shitty thing to do to somebody. He saved the entire X-Men comic franchise, brought it to a point of new status quo and success that it hasn't seen since Grant Morrison's new X-Men. Like, he turned a pile of literal poop of fecal matter into a golden goose for Marvel, and then they pushed him out so that these mid-tier writers could take over for the great place he put them in and just bring it all down again. I am just very, very mad. Again, I do not feel bad for Jonathan Hickman. He'll be fine. I feel bad for myself and other comics readers who aren't going to get that whatever it was that he had planned. And yes, to clarify, they did not push him out. They did not kick him out. It was a thing of Hickman had this plan that they were going through and the other writers really fell in love with this particular era of Krakoa that we are in. And they said, but wait, we want to stay here and play in this world for a while. And so Hickman said, okay, well then I'm going to take a step back and I'll come back and finish my stuff in a little bit. Clearly things developed beyond that and he's not coming back now. Um, but that's why I say they pushed him out because it was kind of that situation in a sense. Again, he'll be fine but I will be mad, as other X-Men readers ought to be. <laughs> and that leads us into this week's comic book pull list. These are things that are going to be coming out tomorrow, the 30th of November, and Wednesday, the 1st of December. Can you believe it's December already? Yeah, I, yeah, that checks out. So we have a number of number ones here, a number of one-shots, a number of anniversary issues, annuals, um, a couple final issues, it looks like. Um, and then just some really fun, exciting stuff. So let's go ahead and kick kick right off. I'm not going to go through all the solicitations on this one, um, possibly for the indie material, but not really much else. So speaking of indie material, <laughs> it's going to kick off two indie number ones. The first is called Animal Castle. This is by Xavier Dorison and Felix Dilep. I, or I, I think it's still up. I'm sorry. This is coming from a blaze and it says that it's for fans of stray dogs or beasts of burden. It says, you may think you know the story, but set aside your assumptions. This animal uprising, if you hear anything in the background, my cat's losing her mind. This animal uprising is unlike any you have read. Nestled in the heart of far of a farm forgotten by men, the animal castle is ruled with an iron hoof by President Silvio, who I think is a bull. Oh yeah, the bull and its dog militia savor their power while the other animals are exhausted by work until the mysterious Azelard, a traveling rat who will teach them the secrets of 
civil disobedience. I mean, that sounds really fun, if nothing else. Um, a civil disobedience comic starring animals? Where can you go? I mean, you can go wrong in a lot of places, but this sounds really cool. I'll definitely check out the first issue. King of Spies number one is another one from Mark Millar. Miller, Millar, please help. And Matteo Scalera. Matteo Scalera did the art for the White Knight Harley Quinn series. If you read that one, um, those most recent White Knight material that came out, really, really fantastic art. And this is going to be coming from Image. What it says about this series is the world's greatest secret agent has six months to live. Does he die quietly in a hospital bed or does he make up for a life of bad decisions? He's been propping up an unfair system for over 40 years. Now he knows where all the bodies are buried and has nothing to lose when he turns his guns on everyone who ever made a buck creating the mess we're in right now. That sounds really cool. I gotta say also it sounds a lot like Human Target by Tom King. <laughs> um, obviously with very key differences, but is Mark Millar British? No, I don't think so. Hell if I know. Moving on, Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazons. Okay, so... This is a number one. It's going to be, I think, of three or four. Honestly, can't remember. Um, if you are subscribing to Kelly Sue DeConnick and Matt Fraction's combined email newsletter, uh, I believe it is Milkfed Productions or something like that is their uh, title. They um, had written about this once it was finally announced as, okay, it's actually happening. <laughs> this has been... Oh gosh, I want to say it was like 2017 when they first announced that this was something that Kelly Sudaconic was going to be working on. Um, and it's finally here. Um, it's not about Wonder Woman. It is the history of the Amazons. Uh, they had to put Wonder Woman in there to... This is from Kelly Sudaconic's newsletter, what she herself said. They had to put Wonder Woman in there to get DC to approve the title because they felt like that would get more people to read the book. Um, fine, whatever. It is DC Black Label. It was originally written to be nine different comics, uh, nine different issues, and it has been combined into now what I believe is either three or four prestige plus, as in magazine format series comics that are going to be 40 plus pages each. This first issue is going to have Phil Jimenez on the art he is a farther than legendary Wonder Woman artist alongside the likes of George Perez era comics. This is going to be friggin' amazing, guys. <laughs> uh, I will read you this one solicitation. Millennia ago, Queen Hera and the goddesses of Olympian pantheon grew greatly dissatisfied with their male counterparts. <laughs> It's funny because, you know, um, and far from their sight, they put a plan into action. A new society was born, one never before seen on Earth, capable of wondrous and terrible things. But their existence could not stay secret for long. When a despairing woman named Hippolyta crosses the Amazon's path, a series of events was set in motion that would lead to an outright war in heaven and the creation of the Earth's greatest guardian. So we have, obviously, Kelly Sue writing this, Kelly Sue DeConnick. Phil Jimenez is doing the art. But in the, I guess it's three issues. In the next two issues, it's going to be artist Gene Ha and then Nicola freaking Scott. Nicola Scott has an incredible, incredible 
portfolio of work across Marvel and DC. She's been a lot at Marvel, honestly, more recently, but I'm sorry, the other way around, DC more recently. Ah, I'm getting myself twisted up. Um, and she and Jean Ha are both up there with legends like Phil Jimenez. And so this is incredibly exciting. Um, what it says, you know, one of the most unforgettable DC tales. This is the kind of thing that you keep on your shelf and you refer to as one of your favorite stories about the Amazons. I, I, I can feel this, how good it's going to be. Just so excited. The Death of Doctor Strange White Fox is a one-shot tying into, of course, Death of Doctor Strange. It is written by Alyssa Wong with art by Andy Tong, and it's covering the character of White Fox. She is Ami Han, and she is the last of the mythical shape-shifting Kumiho, a mystical Korean shape-shifting nine-tailed fox known for hunting by seducing men in order to tear out their hearts and eat them. Lovecraft country, anyone? I really like the character of White Fox since I first saw her in Agents of Atlas, which was a really, really great series. Any of them that you pick out, except for the first one, because it's irrelevant to what I'm talking about. Um, but I will be checking this out because I'm really curious about where she's at with her current history. Darkhold Black Bolt. Now, this is one that I am quite curious about. This is by Mark Russell with art by David Cutler. Um, there's this Darkhold thing going on. I'm honestly not sure. Darkhold, it's a say in this. I know it's written by Cathan. They're probably putting this out to get a jump on the WandaVision hype because the Darkhold was the book in that. Um, there's all that hype about people trying to speculate stuff. Oh, is Cathan gonna appear? Is Mephisto gonna appear? Is, you know, strange, any of those? Um, so it's, uh, that's what the Darkhold is. It's all involved with that kind of stuff. Evil, magical text. Um, and they're bringing Black Bolt into this. It's a bunch of one-shots is all I can really figure out this Darkhold mini-event is. Um, but this is the only one that I'll be checking out because, um, I... I my interest in this is solely because I'm hoping it's going to kick off something with the Inhumans. Specifically Medusa, if I'm being honest, uh, making a return of some kind. Last time we saw them was not great. Um, Marvel really screwed up a lot of the creative, overall larger creative decisions in time where the Inhuman stuff kind of fell through the cracks. Um, we won't go into all that, but I'm a really big fan of Medusa, specifically. Black Bolt is awesome because his power is that if he was to whisper a word, he could break a city. If he was to scream, he could crack a planet. Like, he is bonkers powerful, and he, so he's like this silent brooding. It's, it's kind of fun. And Medusa being Medusa, and she's just a sick-ass babe. I love her. Um, crazy powerful herself. Um... Someday I got to do a whole thing on her, but that's assuming she ever comes back. So that's why I'm interested in this Darkhold Black Bolt thing. The Inhumans have been pretty much just gone. <laughs> I think there's only the Inhuman royal family is all that's left out of living Inhumans. It's a long story, but uh, hoping this will start some kind of thing where I get to see Medusa again. <clears throat> Gotham City Villains Anniversary Giant Number 1 is going to be... Uh, let's see, it's going to have... Stories for Scarecrow, Poison Ivy, Ra's al Ghul, and Talia, the Mad Hatter, Killer Moth, and the original Red Hood. Uh, then we also are going to have a Danny DeVito written story. Yes, Danny DeVito. That Danny DeVito. Uh, he's writing a story about the Penguin. I'm very curious how that's going to turn out. 
So obviously I'm going to pick this up mostly for that and also for the gorgeous Poison Ivy Marguerite Sauvage cover. It's going to have writing by G. Willow Wilson, Joshua Williamson, Marguerite Scott, which I probably mispronounced, I'm sorry, Dan Waters, Philip Kennedy Johnson, Stephanie Phillips, Danny DeVito, and Wes Craig. There's going to be art by a number of artists, including Dan Mora and Christian Ward. I couldn't honestly find more names than that. Maniac of New York, The Bronx is Burning, number one, is a kickoff to the second series of Maniac of New York. I really enjoyed it. Didn't read the last issue, not gonna lie. I never made it that far. I got caught up with other stuff, but I really enjoyed the first run. So if you're looking for the kind of like crazy watercolored serial killer slashing up New York and nobody can stop him kind of situation, boom, The Bronx is Burning for you. The Wonder Woman 2021 annual is by Becky Cluden and Michael Conrad, and it is going to go over her past, mysterious man appearing, claiming to know history of the Amazons. There's going to be issues in Themyscira. Judgment is coming for the Amazons. I might pick this one up. Um, annuals tend to be slightly to the side of what is going on in the regular series, so you can usually pick them out and read them on their own, and it'll make a bit of sense. Human Target number two, I already mentioned, by Tom King with art by Greg Smallwood. It is coming from DC Black Label. It's the story of Christopher Chance, who at book one had 12 days to solve his own murder um, because he was poisoned and he's kind of trying to figure out if it wasn't meant for him or wasn't meant for who he was impersonating, Lex Luthor. Uh, so now we are doing a book a day. This is going to be day... To, well, want to. He has now 11 days. Um, so we're going to meet Ice in this, who is a member of the Justice League International, uh, and she is going to add some more drama and twists to the mystery. Horizon Zero Dawn Liberation is another one I'm so sorry to say I'm behind on, but it is coming out with its final issue, number four, this week. Uh, unfortunately, the game, uh, Forbidden West, the sequel to the original game, was also pushed back to 2022. It's actually not that unfortunate because I don't have a PlayStation anymore and I'm saving up for, in the, for to get a new one, so I got time to save up for that. It's going to be a while. <laughs> X-Men Trial of Magneto number four comes out this week by Leah Williams with art by David Messina, as well as one of my all-time favorites, Lucas Wernick. This has been a bit of an odd series because it is both good and mediocre at the same time, and I'm not really sure how that's working, but I'm still excited for it, even though it's not as good as I thought it was going to be. I don't know. Uh, in the last issue, spoilers, obviously, it was revealed that the person doing this to Wanda is like old woman Wanda. Um... I know they're coming out with those Wastelanders books soon. Um, I will be very upset if this ties into that. <laughs> why? Just why? Um, but it is more likely that this is going to be tying more into the whole thing of her being a Nexus being, etc. Uh, again, more stuff that was kind of brought back into relevance with the WandaVision show. The, you, the Me You Love in the Dark number five is coming out with its final issue this week. The last issue ended with Ro having her publisher or art agent, whatever he is, his uh, throat was slit by her mysterious being because he can't let her go, basically. So that's pretty creepy. It's from Image. This is a fantastic series by Scotty Young with art by Jorge Corona, and it is brilliant art. You can catch his art again, I think, next week, uh, starting with Batgirls number one. 
Wonder Girl number five comes out this week by Joelle Jones with art by Adriana Mello, colors by Jordi Belair, and a goddamn necessary Jenny Frizen variant featuring the one, the only Yara Floor. I am thrilled with this series. I definitely think the last issue pushed us pretty far uh, timeline-wise to get us to a point that we're going to be now seeing at this issue. So I'm really excited to see what it is that is going to be revealed to us here today or tomorrow, I guess, is when this comes out. The Good Asian number seven. Again, I am behind on this one. Um, my husband is eating it up. He's absolutely loving it. It's going to be out of 10 issues. They actually expanded the series from its original seven to 10. I believe it was six before that. Uh, but it was getting such good feedback that they made it a little bit longer than it was going to be originally. It's from Image, and it is a detective noir mystery taking place in 1930s Chinatown with an Asian American detective as the investigator in charge. So very complicated stuff with themes of race and immigration and... Oh gosh, all kinds of stuff like that, which is unfortunately still very relevant in our modern society. So check out The Good Asian. I am going to read it probably when it's finished. I'm just super behind on general things in comics right now. I am apologize. I apologize to admit that doesn't make sense. You get it. New Mutants 23 is by one of the last good writers left in the X-Men writing history. At the current moment, Vita Ayala with art by the fantastical Rod Reese. Uh, in the last issue, Amal Farouk, the Shadow King, pretty much captured the New Mutants, and the little New Mutants are going to try and save them. So I also want to put it in a reminder that Ileana Rasputin, aka Magic, is going to become the next Sorcerer Supreme in the Marvel Universe, and I am goddamn thrilled. Uh, she's also going to be battling Madeline Pryor for rulership of Limbo, aka the Goblin Queen, New Mutants, again, this is uh, what I, this is the reason why this is the one I'm going to be keeping up with in the future out of all of the X-Books. Marauders number 26, once again, I mentioned Gary Duggan can write the shit out of MN this series, but why did he do her so poorly in X-Men? It doesn't make sense. Um, this is going to be, uh, well, the second to last series, I mean, second to last issue of the series, 27 is going to be the final issue, uh, with art by Matteo Loli, who honestly is not my favorite, um, but we're going to be having, apparently, a viewing of Fing Fang Foom in this issue, who I am so relieved they did not call the Great Protector Dragon Fing Fang Foom in Shang-Chi. That would have sucked. <laughs> Captain Marvel number 34 has a plethora of really sick covers coming this week, including an art germ spoiler variant, which spoilers is of Captain Marvel as in Marvel. Um, if I was to guess, this would be, um, Clert, was that his name? The scroll who went undercover as Marvel and then basically became Marvel on accident. Um, the solicitation does mention that it's going to take something really powerful to break free, something nobody, not even Carol, knew was possible. So that would be the most obvious thing, unless they're actually going to bring back dang Marvel, which I know the most relevant thing he ever did was die. So why would they bring him back? <laughs> we'll see, I guess. This is Kelly Thompson and Sergio Fernandez de Villa, and I cannot for the life of me figure out why they will not put an artist on this comic for more than three issues at a time. 
Daredevil number 36 is the final issue by Chip Zartsky. The series mainly was done with art by Marco Cicchetto, but this issue is going to have art by Manuel Garcia. This is leading us into Devil's Reign in... Well, Devil's Reign. <laughs> it's going to be starting, I believe, next month. We still have Elektra as Daredevil, but we also have Matt Murdock out of jail theoretically as Daredevil as well. <laughs> this is legacy number 648 for Daredevil. And again, it is the final issue of the Chip Zartsky Daredevil run. Finally, Avengers number 50 will be coming out. I may or may not be getting this, to be honest. We'll see. It says that it's the conclusion to World War She-Hulk, which has been an absolute travesty of a story arc, and I am ashamed to have even read it. Um, not good. Really not good. Super meh. But if I'm gonna bitch about it, I gotta have at least read it, right? That's where my thought process comes from here. Before we get into the Hawkeye kickoff discussion, I just want to remind you what we're going to be discussing here and that I am going to be having uh, the time signatures, timestamps, whatever it is, in the description so you can get to the points of the discussion that you really want to get to. However, that being said, um, it's going to start off with episode one and then we're going to do episode two. It's just going to be a straight going over all the episode because there is a good amount of stuff that I'm going to be stopping the episode description to refer to what this is, what the parallel in the comics is. Um, on that note, a massive massive portion of what this show is based off of is specifically the Matt Fraction and David Aha Hawkeye run. I believe it was Hawkeye volume two. I just did a quick Google. I was super wrong. It's Hawkeye volume four. Why did I think the Kate Bishop Hawkeye was volume four? Hmm. I may have said something. I may. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, it was 2012 to 2015 run. Um, as I was saying, a massive majority portion of what this show is based off of comes from their comic run. Uh, at the end of this episode, the, the two episode discussion, I will go over specifically what all of those things are because, and I want to make sure that I get this in before you start celebrating the episode, they are not paying Matt Fraction or David Aha a goddamn cent for any of that stuff that they're pulling from. Granted, Granted, they don't they create the characters. They don't own the characters. Matt Fraction's wife is Kelly Sue DeConnick of Captain Marvel fame. Why did she get to go into the Captain Marvel movie and he is completely ignored by Marvel? Um, they both have done exactly the same for the character. They have both elevated the characters to the same levels from probably were equal levels before that. Honestly, I would even say for Hawkeye, Fraction took him from a point of nobody giving a rat's goddamn ass about him to making it one of the most celebrated series in modern comics. Fucking period. And they are not paying him or David Aha, who is the artistic designer for the costumes, for the everything, for the characters who we see in the show, Again, I'm going to be going over all the specifics of what it was they took from their run and are not fucking crediting them for. Their names are not in the credits. Their names are not in the opening or end credits. They are not anywhere. Um, 
So as we go through this, I just want you to know <laughs> that Disney Marvel is consistently continuing to screw over their own creators um, because they can. <laughs> so let's 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 go ahead and get this shit kicked off. Again, it will be a lot of comic discussion throughout the episode as we get to Easter eggs and references. So the show starts off with a young Kate during the Battle of New York. So we get the pieces put together here. It places her with a extremely wealthy parents, her extremely wealthy parents, in downtown New York City penthouse when the attack strikes with childhood Kate witnessing the Chitauri invasion literally from her front windows. It collapses a section of their apartment, almost hitting her in the process, and the battle presumably kills her white-collar crime father. But in the midst of the attack, as she stands in the rubble overlooking the city and a Chitauri drone heads to take her out, it gets taken out by none other than Hawkeye, Clint Barton. He probably didn't notice her, honestly, but she was left alone, able to watch him as he continues to battle the aliens, showing the scene of him leaping off the building back backwards and shooting upwards at them as he falls, but from her perspective. Needless to say, it makes an impression on her and of the everyday man hero being just as good as any of the super-powered super ones, and she's left with her mother, uh, Laura? Eleanor, Eleanor, uh, and a psychological need to be able to protect what she has left of her family. After the events of the battle, young Kate wishes to take up archery like the hero who saved her. And it's worth knowing here that Kate in the comics, uh, her father was a wealthy crime boss of sorts. When we catch up with her now, modern day in college, where she's putting on a bet with her friends to see if she can ring a bell on campus with an arrow, which she does. Interestingly, um, this is kind of just a fun fact thing. Her friend's name is Greer, which I don't think is a very common name and is in fact the name of Tigra in the comics. Her name is Greer Grant or Greer Grant Nelson, depending on if she, you're having her keep her married name or not. But she is only credited for one episode of the show and she and Kate, as in Greer and Kate, don't have any history in the comics. So this is probably just a coincidence. Just fun fact. It takes her a few tries, takes Kate a few tries to get the bell to ring, but she does it with a trick arrow that she's able to put together on the spot, and the bell ends up cracking, falling down the tower, and taking the bell tower clock with it. Good stuff. When we first see Clint, he is watching the Broadway Captain America show, which I think is called Rogers, and is as bad as you would expect. Cheesy lines, inaccurate plotting, and character involvement, and Clint being constantly reminded of the time he watched his best friend, Natasha, die. He's there with his kids while his wife is back home and his daughter is the one to notice he turned off his hearing aid and something isn't right. A little girl cosplaying as Black Widow recognizes Clint and waves to him, which is what makes this all a bit much for him and he takes his exit. In the bathroom, the urinal he uses is graffitied with Thanos was right, uh, which is funny, and a dude not only takes the stall next to him but tries to get a selfie while they pee. My thing about this is if I was that dude, I would have looked at Hawkeye's dick, but okay. Um... Then he tries to get a selfie again while they're literally mid-washing their hands. Um, one thing I wanted to note here was, what are the chances that Thanos was right is a direct reference to the subreddit by the same name? Memes in the MCU, man. What an age we live in. But the scene is very awkward, obviously, to say the least. His daughter finds him later outside getting some fresh air, and she definitely understands right away that this is about Nat, her father's best friend. Kate, meanwhile, has her own apartment in New York, but stops by her mom place by her request. 
Now, let's talk Eleanor Bishop. She was canonically dead in the comics since Kate's childhood until an issue of Kelly Thompson's Hawkeye. Oh, I did write it up volume five in here. I was right. Cool. Volume five that revealed that she was alive and a few issues later subsequent subsequently revealed that she was directing the actions of one Madame Mask. Mask, who first appeared in Iron Man number 17 in 1969, has a history with a number of Marvel characters, including Iron Man, of course, which is notable because in 2016, we learned that Rebecca Hall's character in Iron Man 3 was cheated out of being the first female villain of the MCU, with her role of Dr. Maya Hansen supposedly originally meant to lead her to becoming the villainous Madame Mask for the MCU. The script was completed when they had the plans changed for her not to be the villain. Why? They thought a female figure toy wouldn't sell. Do you know anybody with the Aldrich Killian figure? Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, So I will forever mourn what could have been with Rebecca Hall's character here. That all being said, though, last September, there were some very strong rumors that Madame Mask would appear in this Hawkeye series, along with rumors of a newly cast Bobby Morris as Mockingbird. I loved Adrian Padalecki's Mockingbird in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so I I would have preferred her, but these are just rumors anyway, and Rebecca Hall's Dr. Hansen is dead in the MCU, so it would be a a different Madame behind the mask as it was. Good old MCU, consistently forcing women viewers to accept what they have, what they've given us in terms of fair representation. We have no choice. So back to the show. Eleanor in the show is played by Vera Farmiga, and I feel like I have to note she is one of a few actresses of that age that Marvel has cast in surprising roles. And I wanted to note that because that is a pattern I definitely do not hate to see. She looks killer, honestly, super killer in this stunning red dress pants thing. I don't know, but it's flowy and red. And she invites Kate to a charity auction dinner that is happening that night. Kate doesn't want to go, but she definitely owes her mother, who is actively working on replacing her college's entire clock and bell tower. Kate's credit cards are canceled as well, and her mother points out that she's been young and rich her whole life, but that doesn't make her invincible. I really, really like that they pointed out the wealth thing here, because it is so true that Kate Bishop has an overflowing plethora of privilege, and I would love to see that touched on more throughout the show. Kate has a collection of ribbons and trophies from various sporting events, and this latest one is for martial arts, so her mother reports that Kate got her black belt at 15. Eleanor's boyfriend, Jack, who is played by Tony Dalton, interrupts them supremely awkwardly like a man up to something, which kind of makes me feel like he must be a clueless idiot because it's way too obvious that he would be anything interesting. That being said, however, you have to know that... The character Jacques Duquens, who is spelled J-A-C-K, wait, hang on, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S. I'm pretty sure that's not how they spell Jack. It's Tony Dalton's character, but uh, he is the character in the comics that they call the Swordsman. Uh, His first appearance was all the way back in Avengers number 19 in 1965, created by the late and the greats Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Uh, In the comics, he's an Avengers member with 
bad intentions. It, it's complicated. He's he's a character who it's been established since was the man to really train Clint and his brother in fighting with the bow and arrow. Additionally, he and Mantis, as in Guardians of the Galaxy, hook up and end up having a son together who is then known as the Celestia Messiah. Again, complicated. Mantis is also the Celestial uh, Madonna. It's a whole thing. Uh, we, um, we probably won't be seeing anything about that in the MCU, but whether or not they go quite as far as to have him have a connection to Clint's childhood, there is a scene later in the show that gives us a great bit of foreshadowing about whether or not he's going to end up as the extremely complicated swordsman in any kind of way. And yes, Clint has a brother. I did mention that just very briefly. His name is Barney. He first appeared in Avengers number 64 in 1969, just four years after the Swordsman. And he becomes the villain known as Trickshot over the years, although he is the third to take that name. He's a Dark Avenger during the events of Dark Reign and plays a pretty pivotal role in both the Fraction and Lemire Hawkeye runs, the Lemire run having come directly after Fraction. Back to the show. The Bartons, the Barton family, went to Chinese for dinner after their play, and they chat with their mom, Laura, on the phone, who is played by Linda Cardinelli. You have to remember, though, that this is the first time Clint has had his family here for Christmas for five years. They were just gone. And while my husband complained that the oldest kid is a little bit too tall, he probably just hit puberty and you can't really fight that. The restaurant also does give the family dinner for free, um, saying that they this is thanks for saving the city. So by now it is very clear that Clint has no secret identity, which is mainly because of the fall of S.H.I.E.L.D. and he is very publicly well known. Meanwhile, at the fancy party, Kate chose to dress not in the dress her mom picked out for her, but in an all-black suit. Love it. She is approached by a man called Armand III. <laughs> he is the uncle to her mother's arm candy, Jack, who drops the news that her mom and Jack are, in fact, engaged. She is relieved when Armand VII, a literal child, interrupts. Now I'm trying to figure out, is that like his son, is that one of his kids or is that like a grandkid or a grandnephew? I don't know. I honestly, it doesn't probably matter. But in the comics, you should know that Armand Duquence is the father of the swordsman. Now they've made a point to say this guy is the uncle, so clearly he's not going to be that same character. And also there have been rumors that for some reason it's Simon Cowell who is going to briefly appear as Armand, the father of Jack. So what number would he have? Like four? If if Armand III is Jack's uncle and Armand is also his father, he would be the fourth, right? That would make sense. Um, in the comics, Armand IV, as in the father of the swordsman, that's a bit confusing. Uh, he is introduced and dies in the same comics issue. Just fun fact. <laughs> Avengers Spotlight 22 in 1989. Back to the show. Outside the party, Kate sees a dog sitting there watching her and he just kind of runs off. That is our first pizza dog sighting. Upon going back into the party, Kate overhears her mother arguing with good old Armand III, who seems to be threatening her about some secret she has. Notably, he mentions that he has powerful friends too, quote, the kind you don't want to mess with. Kingpin, anyone? 
When they clear the area, she follows the old man down to the wine cellar, she as in Kate, where she poses as staff and discovers a high-end underground auction, and the next items that are coming up for bid include the Ronin sword, to be followed by the Ronin suit. But before Armand or Jack could outbid one another, the place is bombed by the good old tracksuit mafia. When guns are drawn, Kate dresses Ronin saves the day. One thing I do have to stop here and note, just in case there is confusion, this is not Ronan, the Cree accuser. This is Ronin, R-O-N-I-N, spelled differently and referencing traditional Japanese solo warriors. All right, moving on. Kate does get out of the basement to find Lucky, as yet unnamed, pizza dog, attacking one of the mafia guys outside. She runs down the street after the dog. He goes running into heavy traffic and freezes up, almost hitting cars a number of times, and Kate saves him. So awesome. One thing I'm really having trouble with is the scene that comes up next. It's not even a whole scene, it's just a little clip. Because my first instinct is that it was indicative of an apparent romance that they're setting up between Kate and one of the tracksuit guys. They came into the auction in ski masks, but he he is the one who kind of figures out she's not the real Ronin. Um, And that guy who fought her... He, he could tell that he she wasn't the right wasn't real Ronan, but outside across the street, uh, he sees her out there when she's saving Pizza Dog and lifts his mask. He is admittedly oddly attractive compared to the others, especially, and he makes eye contact with her for a moment. She sees him seeing her, runs off, but then they call his name Kazi. Um, and he gets called back to them, but he watches her run for a few seconds before he turns away. Obvious setup material, you would think, right? The thing is, Kazimierz, Kazimierzak, I don't know if that's right how you say that, in the comic is the mercenary villain known as The Clown, who works with the tracksuits in the Fraction series. He is a big, big problem for Clint, doesn't care about innocent bystanders or casualties, and will kill anything or anyone that gets in his way. Clearly, this character is, at the very least, Kazi, named after the comics clown, Kazimierz Kazimierzak. A lot of articles out there are claiming that this is wasting the villain the clown, but I don't think this is the last time we're going to be seeing this guy. He was the only tracksuit that we had that moment to stop, see, learn the name of, and connect with briefly. So he's obviously going to be important again at some other point down the line. I'm not saying he's going to turn into the clown, but he'll definitely have something else relevant going on. Now, my guess, I'm already pretty sure that this guy is the hood. Back in July of 2019, all that long ago, over two years, two and a half years ago, there was a rumor that the hood, real name, literally Robin Hood, I'm not kidding, would appear in this show. But why? He's not a hugely relevant character to anything going on. I guess when Matthew Rosenberg wrote him as the main antagonist in the Hawkeye Freefall series, um, that counts, but uh, that was there was a lot of other stuff going on with that too. And in my opinion, that series just added a lot more reasons to hate Clint and show that he's a massive piece of shit in the comics. He really is. He is what he is. Let me think. Probably the wor- has the worst history with women. Um, literally every relationship he's ever had, he has cheated on the woman that he's with. Not even joking. Um, traditionally in the comics, the Hood is a dude who has this 
mystical red cloak that gives him powers from demons or some crap like that. My point is, he wears a red hood. Kazi's ski mask was red, so it fits. Um, with the rumors and the name. Still, are they going to make this a romance as well? Or was that just coincidental? It's the way they're trying to make you notice him. I don't know, but let me know what you think if you saw it. The Bartons, they get back to their hotel for the night and turn on the TV to find the events of the gala all over the news, including footage of Kate as Ronan saving the dog in the street. Clint's kids clearly don't know his history as Ronan based on their reactions, but he flashes back to when we first see him as Ronan in Endgame when Natasha finds him to bring him home to save the world, which was their last mission together. This hits him hard and it isn't, it's obvious that he isn't going to be able to let this occurrence go. Kate and Lucky, who is still unnamed, go back to her own apartment where she talks her questions out to him and feeds some pizza, kind of gives him the name Pizza Dog, uh, which she later says is more like a title, then decides to head out to find Armand III and see what it is that he's threatening her mom about. Her family does own a security company, Bishop Security, and that's where they get their wealth from, so she's able to track anyone with a phone number. Pretty handy. She finds out that Armand is at home and breaks in wearing the Ronin suit to find him dead, already stabbed on the floor. She's forced to flee when the housekeeper arrives, only to run directly into the tracksuit mafia. She is saved by Clint, who whips them around with a wet scarf, basically, with his and his bare hands, I guess, before dragging Kate off. And he is really mad to find out that she's just a young woman, not some big dude he can beat up without, you know, feeling morally qualmish about it. But she, she is thrilled to find out that he is Hawkeye. That brings us to episode dos, two. Kate, picking up right where we left off, Kate is in a bit of shock and awe. She takes Clint to her place. She lives above a pizza shop, just like Clint in the comics, Kowinky Dink. They were, they established that she inherited this apartment and she is the age 22. She goes to change and comes back in a full purple track, I say track, so it's more like a sweatsuit, asking Clint to sign her bow like a little fangirl. It's pretty funny. He kind of interrogates her on what she's been up to while wearing the suit, but then the track shoots show up outside her windows. They th throw a few Molotov cocktails, one of which Clint chucks back at them and another Kate actually shoots out of their hands which pretty much proves her as being legit. The whole place is on fire, so they grab the dog and go, leaving the suit behind in the flames. Kate takes them to an apartment building, pressing a bunch of buttons until she gets in. She says that it's her aunt's place in Florida for the winter. I feel like that can't possibly be true. Clint goes back to her place or for the suit, impersonating a fireman to do so. I'm pretty sure that's illegal, but whatever. <laughs> the suit is gone though, and all he notices for a clue is a New York City LARPers sticker on the fire truck. So he goes back to Kate's safe house. Uh, he can tell that she did her bandages wrong, so he redoes them and all the cleaning and covering for her again. He uses the hashtag NYC LARPers to find a guy on Instagram showing off his costume and finds a marping meetup that he can go to the next day. The next morning, he sends his kids off to the airport on their own, and his youngest signs, I love you, dad, to him. His daughter is smart enough to see the cut on his forehead and know that something else is going on, something heroic, and makes him promise that he'll be home for Christmas. Taking off with Kate, the hearing aid gets brought up again and is more or less explained by the Hawkeye lost his hearing from repeated incidents during various heroic events. I want to stop for a second. I gotta mention the music in this show. 
it's mostly based around various traditional Christmas tunes. Um, and they get away with it just because the time of year. If they had put this show out a week before Thanksgiving, I would have lost my mind. The fact, the rule in my household, you don't, there's no Christmas till after Thanksgiving, preferably December 1st, but at least wait till Thanksgiving's over. <laughs> uh, we don't need Christmas fatigue, thank you very much. But so anyway, um, based around the Christmas music, right? Um, but they managed to tweak the classic holiday songs just enough to match the pacing of whatever's happening on the show. For example, during this particular scene, showing the the brief little montage of Hawkeye getting bashed in the head and having hearing traumas happening over and over again, they timed the shots to go with the of the drummer boy. Um, and it's it, they, they kind of make it, a little bit more dramatic than just bum 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 bum. They go like ba 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 bum bum. It's like I, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed for having made that noise just now. But they make it a big deal, okay? My point is, they did a great job making the music match the pacing of the show. <laughs> Moving on, uh, Clint and Kate exchange contact information. He hopes to never see her again, and she's probably not of the same mindset. Jack, meanwhile, uh, we find brought he bought a book about being a stepdad, but apparently missed the memo about not psychoanalyzing your new stepdaughter to her face. <laughs> so their relationship's off to a great start, clearly. Clint goes to the LARPing event. He sees his target is there in the suit, but he has to pay the fee and rent the gear to be allowed in. They do a really good job with the LARPing scene, LARPing scene honestly. I found it to be very fun and very entertaining, especially seeing the variety of people who were all there. He makes his way to the fireman thief, and they make a deal. Duel in battle, let him win, and he'll give Hawkeye back the suit. They do it, he follows through, it all goes surprisingly well, and he gets the suit back from Clint by the end of the scene. He also introduces himself as Grills, which we'll mention in a little bit. Meanwhile, a New York Police Department detective has gotten in touch with Kate, asking about the fire in her apartment, but that's really all we get out of this interaction. Probably gonna lead up to something later. Clint knows that he is not going to be able to leave now after everything that's happened he got the suit but there is still more going on especially with the tracksuit mafia he gets in touch with his wife and fills her in and i was very very relieved to see that she is 100 percent aware of his business as ronin and all of that uh, and knows that this is something that he just has to do she supports it she mentions nat and she wishes him luck at Jack's house for dinner with her mother later that night, Kate ends up in a fencing competition with him. Kate wins, but can tell that he has been holding back and it infuriates her to the point of confrontation on what it is that he, she thinks he's hiding. There's a lot of discourse between Kate and her mother about Jack and with Jack. But when he pulls out an olive branch in the form of a butterscotch, Kate notices that it's monogrammed with Armand III, just how these, his deceased uncle had them at his own house. Realizing what this potentially means, that Jack was at Armand's house, the night he was murdered, Kate leaves in a hurry. Now, remember what I said about Jacques being the swordsman? Well, he did just do some fancy sword plays, so that certainly leads us in the right direction. Clint confronts the tracksuit mafia. They take him in with them, saying that somebody wants them alive, saying she wants him alive. Then uh, Clint says that he can see through the bag they put over his head. 
continuing that they're idiots. I love it. She does try calling him, Kate does, and it's picked up by a mafia member. So she uses her mom's security company to track his phone and heads his way. Clint is being interrogated by the tracksuits and asked to speak to their manager. It makes me wonder if he already knows Maya in any way. But Kate breaks through the ceiling and as they're asking him where she is and they end up duct taping them both to kitty rides. He sees Kazi, remember we talked about him already, off to the side and assumes that he is their leader. Apparently he isn't because then we meet Maya. They hear her coming when the music starts. You see a room in red lights, ominous music blaring over the speakers, and you can see the speakers wobble with the sound and the beat as her hand hovers over them, feeling the noise. She is in a black leather jacket with her hair pulled back, and they enter the room behind her. The tracksuit enunciates very clearly that they have found them both and repeats it when she does not respond. Instead, she just shoots him out of the room with her hand, and he leaves. She turns back around and looks down towards the camera, then looks up and her eyes meet the camera, and goddamn, she looks so good! (laughs) I have already talked- that's the end of the episode, by the way. I've already talked a fair bit in the past episodes about Maya and her comic history, but in case you missed it, she first showed up in the Marvel Knights Daredevil issue number nine, written by David Mack and drawn by Joe Casada. As Maya, she was a deaf indigenous woman who wound up briefly dating Matt Murdock, but as Echo, her hero identity, she hunted Daredevil at night, looking for vengeance for his apparent murder of her father, named Crazy Horse in the comics. The truth of the matter was that he was murdered by Kingpin and Daredevil was framed. We learned in December 2020 that actor Zahn McLarnan was cast in the series as a character named Willie Lopez, which most speculators will agree will likely turn out to be Maya's MCU father. This all goes along with the rumors of Kingpin appearing in the series at some point, which at this point honestly is about as likely as Garfield and Maguire being in No Way Home. It's all but confirmed. So all we have left to speculate here is the order of events. Clint killed Maya's father as Ronin, or was at least framed to do it? Did Kingpin pay him to do it, or was he a casualty of Ronin's fury? Did Wilson Fisk, did, did Willie work for Kingpin? I was going to say Willie Fisk. Did Willie work for Kingpin, and did Kingpin kill Willie? There's a fair amount of questions, but what we know for sure at this point is that there is a murder triangle connecting Willie Lopez... Wilson, I almost did it again, Wilson Fisk and Clint Barton. No doubt the two remaining, who are Clint and Wilson, will not leave this battle unscathed. Maya, in the show, is leading the tracksuit mafia very clearly. She has history, or Clint has history with the tracksuit mafia, or at least knowledge of them, based on his conversation with his wife on the phone. Did she just take charge? Was she leading them when her father died, or had that his had that been his role before her do they all work for kingpin i am just i'm so excited to learn about this dynamic because it's going to lead us into a a lot of information for when maya gets her echo series on disney plus in a year or so she is the host of the phoenix force right now in the comics with her own mini series going so be sure to check that out if you want to know more about her character and now we're gonna gripe a little bit But with good reason, because as I mentioned before I started this Hawkeye discussion, oh god, so much, so, so much of this material is taken from the Matt Fraction David Aha run of Hawkeye Volume 4. 
This was 2012 to 2016, thereabouts. Um, and it elevated the character in a similar way that Kelly Sue DeConnick stepping in for Carol Danvers and making her Captain Marvel elevated that character. D- uh, David Aha and Matt Fraction have not seen a morsel of recognition from Disney or Marvel in any sense and have not received a half penny. I'm trying to think of the smallest money I know. They haven't received a single cent for this show having come out, regardless of the fact that I would say a solid 75% of what's going on are references or taken directly to or from their run. So what I have done here is I have eight points of things that have come directly from the Fraction AHA run. A number of them are bulked up together, so there's actually a lot more than eight, but I just kind of grouped them all together. So starting off with point the first, the most obvious one that I think everybody is able to catch up with pretty quickly here, um, the purple and white color scheme and minimalistic design of the entire opening credits, title sequence, marketing design for the posters. It is all 100% based around AHA's purple and white target design and all of the graphic design and visual design that he did for that series. 100% from AHA's work. Point the second. Clint's deafness was something that was established in the comics after an attack from Crossfire back in the day, but it had been restored by Franklin Richards when he brought back a bunch of people for Counter-Earth. Fraction had Clint deafened again during an attack from the villain known as the Clown, who I've already discussed, and his deafness remained a big part of the rest of the series. Additionally, it was later revealed in issue 19 of their run that he was deaf as a child as well, though it wasn't made clear if he just wore hearing aids or regained his hearing at some point or what the case was there. So while Fraction did not come up with Clint's deafness, he established it being a lifelong occurrence and brought it back into the modern continuity. Point the third, Lucky, a.k.a. Pizza Dog, is entirely a creation of Matt Fraction and David Aha. When we first meet Lucky, uh, is heavily involving um, escaping the tracksuits and getting stuck in heavy traffic and being wounded. Very, very similar to how it was done in the show, almost beat for beat. His first meal is pizza in the comics, and Kate follow throughs with that again in the show. Point the fourth, the tracksuit mafia. Literally everything about them is the bringing material from Fraction and AHA. Their way of maneuvering in their big white fans, their matching tracksuits, the way they talk, their stupidity of it, their visual design, all of it, all of it, Fraction and AHA. It, it doesn't even put out that poster of them today. Not a goddamn word of who created them. Not one. Uh, point the fifth, Kazi the Clown, working with the tracksuit mafia, well, we don't know if he's going to end up being the clown. We know he's Kazi, and he's named after the clown from the comic. And he's working with the tracksuit mafia, bing, bang, boom, taken from Fraction Aha. Kate's purple sweatsuit is also one that was in David Aha design. Um, actually, you can tie into that Hawkeye's modern costume design as well was done by David Aha. That was entirely his brainchild as well. So costuming in general would just point as the sixth point. The seventh point, uh, the apartment that they stay in being above the pizza shop. Again, that was Clint's apartment in the comic. And if you really want to tie into that, um, if there becomes any other 
further dealings with the tracksuit mafia at the new apartment that supposedly belongs to her aunt, um, that would be entirely referencing to this run as well, because a lot of what the tracksuit mafia are trying to do is they're trying to buy this apartment complex that Clint lives in and kick everybody out and raise the rent prices. And Clint loves his neighbors and doesn't want that to happen to them, so he fights them physically, if need be, to keep them from buying it. And then he ends up buying it, long story short. Um, all the stuff about apartment above a pizza shop, just fraction of awe, 100%. The last point I have, point eight here, is revolving around Grills, the New York City firefighter and LARPer who took the Ronin suit. He is named after a character from the comic created by Fraction and Aha, who lived in the apartment complex with Clint. He does get killed in the comic series by the clown, and he calls Clint Hot Guy. So his name was whether or not he's going to have a further role in the show he is 100% named after the character of Grills from Fraction and Aha's Hawkeye so that wraps up that um, I'm honest to god I'm really loving all this Hawkeye stuff I'm just really mad that Fraction and Aha aren't being credited the way that they 100% completely deserve to be credited now I'd like to talk about live action Netflix Cowboy Bebop. So we watched, I've watched probably the first half of the series. I think I've made it at least three issue episode five, uh, if not six now. And um, I, I know a lot of people have been saying some really negative stuff about it. Honestly, honest to God, I definitely don't think it deserves the hating. I suppose I can see disliking it, but it is not bad enough to hate. I wouldn't even say it's bad at all, honestly. I, I really enjoyed it. The first episode with the couple who are smuggling parts was done really, really well. There are a number of scenes that seem to be pretty much frame for frame from the anime, which works out super well artistically. The characters are designed in a way that makes them really easily recognizable to their anime counterparts without making it too over the top. I did hear someone complaining about wigs, but I honestly don't think they had to use too many wigs. John Cho definitely has his hair just really messed up while, uh, and while I'm talking about him, uh, he, he makes an excellent middle-aged spike, really nails it on the head. Um, Jet, meanwhile, sounds exactly like the anime voice, which is awesome because I think a lot of people kind of saw him as being a black man in the anime as it was. I can see people not liking his sideburns, which were designed to stick out just like in the anime, but to me, and this was especially relevant after seeing him in a couple of episodes, I feel like it fits his character in live action really, really well. Jet totally seems like the kind of dude who would spend a ridiculous amount of time in front of a mirror once a week or so with a high-tech hot comb, straightening the ever-living crap out of his beard hair until he gets it straight as a needle and then gels it to stick out that way. For me, that works perfectly for his character. Faye did take an episode or two to really get into her character for me, I think, but by the time we get to the episode of her talking about her having been a cryosleep cryo amnesiac, she really fits the role like a glove. I have nothing to say for people who don't think that she looks like the character, because those very sharp anime features just don't occur in nature, and I'm honestly quite relieved they didn't just shove a couple big balloons under her top and call it a day. Let's be real, that's how she most differs from Faye in the anime, and it just isn't necessary for her in the live-action version. 
The dynamic between Jet and Spike is really, really nice. They look and sound just like two old friends who've worked together for a really long time. Again, Jet se or Spike seems like the perfect kind of worn out, middle-aged, been there, done that, show me something interesting, Spike. He, he does such a fantastic job, John Cho. One criticism my husband had for Spike was the scene where he shoots the bulletproof window of Vicious's car. He'd spent the past few minutes with his uh, sniper rifle trained on him as he walked to the car. And the criticism here being that Spike from the anime, given the opportunity, would have never let Vicious get away. He would have killed him without a second thought, as opposed to changing his mind to just scare him hitting the bulletproof glass like they did have him do here. I do get the reasoning for that. My guess is they were trying to make Spike look like a better person than Vicious, who would have never let him get in away alive, given the chance. That leaves us with the She-Hulk Ceremony Thanksgiving talk. <laughs> Fall break wrap-up. So again, this is going to be covering the plot of She-Hulk Ceremony parts one and two, the issues between John Byrne and Brian McDuffie, aka Sensational She-Hulk versus She-Hulk Ceremony. There is a surprising amount of history between those two uh, to talk about, and I'm going to be going over all of that good drama. And then I want to go over the character of Wyatt Wingfoot because I 100% believe that he is going to be appearing in the MCU at some point, and I will explain all about his character, all about the really cool stuff that he's done, and all about why he is the perfect pick for an MCU character anytime soon. I had started um, at the earlier side of this podcast, I'd mentioned that I do have the entire issues one and two rundown of She-Hulk Ceremony listed out in my podcast notes, which I will be posting on my website, but my voice is starting to hurt a little bit. So I'm going to give you a rundown, which is actually comes from the history of Wyatt um, on, his wiki on his wiki page. They summarized it really well there. So I'm just going to go over that summary. Um, and you can, if you're really interested in the character of Wyatt, he is super cool. Or in the story of She-Hulk Ceremony, it's very unique. Um, and it has a lot of thoughtfulness to it for a number of reasons. You can check that out on my blog archive, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. Um, and it'll be there in the most recent podcast notes. So the plot of She-Hulk Ceremony, uh, very brief, somewhat briefly. After their breakup, Wyatt... Yeah, Wyatt enrolled in law school. She had dated him before, but events transpired that led him to she to him and She-Hulk getting back together and even getting engaged. Not long after, he returned to his tribe's reservation, accompanied by She-Hulk, so she could meet his family, only to discover that the tribe was, once again, in danger from the corporate meddling of a man called Carlton Beatrice, who had visited decades before, attempting to take advantage of the Kiwazi natural resources. After all of this, they could not prevent Kiwazi's reservation land from being seized. Their treaty with the government was rescinded completely through Beatrice's influence before his defeat, which they did defeat him. Legally, they had no recourse, and the corporation had powerful weapons that not only She-Hulk as a lawyer could hold her own against. In despair at losing her people's homes and land, Wyatt's grandmother, Roberta, passes away. In the grim aftermath, as Wyatt's tribe left their stolen land, Wyatt and She-Hulk decided that they weren't ready to rekindle their romance after all, and that Wyatt needed to stay behind with his people after the loss of their homes. They parted on good terms, and She-Hulk returned to New York, and Wyatt stayed behind in his new role. 
I actually had my own too long didn't read. I just found that I did write out the other day. What I wrote was, She-Hulk gets lonely and thinks a baby will help, asks her ex-slash-friend Wyatt Wingfoot to be a surrogate. He responds by asking her to marry him, and they go to his native reservation to meet his family. But an oil tycoon is looking for spiritual and physical power, and it's up to Jen and Wyatt to stop him. While they are able to stop him, they can't stop the government from rescinding the treaty with his people and kicking them off their ancestral land so the drilling company can search for minerals. Wyatt becomes a chief to his tribe and she and she says her farewell, knowing she doesn't need the legacy of children to be loved, remembered, or successful as a woman. I kinda like my mine better. <laughs> now I did a fair amount of research when I realized that the date on She-Hulk ceremony is 1989. Now the reason I wanted to do that research is because I happen to know off the top of my head that sensational She-Hulk started by John Byrne also kicked off in 1989. Me being the dork that I am, I thought to myself, gee, I wonder which one came first. And I did a quick Google and found this massive drama. Um, it has, it's pretty well, no pretty well known that John Byrne had issues with Marvel um, and he left a few issues into his sensational She-Hulk run only to come back somewhere in the 30s um, to pick up pretty much where he left off. This is the story of why that happens. This is because of She-Hulk ceremony. It's kind of wild. Okay, so let's get in on this. In 1989, John Byrne debuted his new title, The Sensational She-Hulk. Bobby Chase was chosen as the editor for a new title, Bobby Chase being female. Around this time, Dwayne McDuffie and Robin D. Chaplick, Robin being female as well, had already submitted a pitch for a She-Hulk prestige format series, prestige format being the kind of more bound graphic novel. The theory here being that it was originally supposed to be a full graphic novel release and one one edition, not two. Their series was written before John Byrne's first issue of She-Hulk ever came out. Byrne, as the writer of the new regular series, was given a chance, as was the custom, to see if anything in the series conflicted with his own title, as Byrne's few issues of Sensational would be out before the Ceremony miniseries would come out. Byrne made a number of changes, and Chase made them to the book, all but one. Now remember when I say Chase, I'm referring to Bobby Chase, the editor. Um, a scene involving She-Hulk shaving her legs was the scene that they did not remove. Byrne explained his problem with the scene to interviewer Scott Tipton some years ago. And I have his quote here, it's kind of long. So, on top of this was that scene with She-Hulk shaving her legs. Now let me state up front that I have an instant prejudice against this sort of scene. I just don't like him. Not sure why, just don't feel like they are necessary to the development of the characters. However, in the context of this particular scene, the development was to show that Jen was an idiot. Sitting in the tub, shaving her legs, she immediately breaks the blade. So she grabs another razor and breaks that one on the first stroke. So she grabs another and breaks that, and another, and another. The punchline is to see a huge pile of broken razors by the tub. My objection, of course, was that Jen would not do this, even if she needed to shave her legs, which arguably she did not. The first time she tried, the first time the razor broke, she'd get on the phone with her pal Reed Richards and say, here's my problem. And Reed would have an atomic leg shaving apparatus, which knowing Reed would be as big as a Volkswagen, delivered to her apartment within the hour. Problem solved. Now that was what Jer <laughs> Burns position on that scene was. In my own rundown of the, the two issues, which is available on my site, 
This is what I had to say about it when I was summarizing the events. I said, this is one of the major issues Byrne had with Ceremony, saying it made her look stupid to keep trying. In my opinion, in context, it looks more like they're breaking every few swipes. I don't think it makes her look dumb, just desperate and nervous for the night's discussion with Wyatt. With Wyatt. This is perpetrated by her trying on multiple different outfits and going over in her head what she'd say to him to break the ice about having kids together. Again. This looks like her just being very frazzled and unprepared for the night's meeting. She's nervous. She's not an idiot. But to John Byrne, that's 100% what it was. He asked for the scene to be removed, and it was not. Bobby Chase, the editor, meanwhile, also had to deal with complaints from McDuffie, the writer of Ceremony, over all the changes that she did make to his story. So when it came time for Byrne's series to begin, Chase also began making some changes to Byrne's scripts so that they would bring them in line with the story of Ceremony. Here is where we come into a bit of the he said, she said over whether Byrne really said either she says or I go, or she, she goes or I go, talking about Chase, the editor. However, that point was reached. Marvel editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco ultimately sided with Chase over Byrne, and Byrne was off She-Hulk. He would later return after Chase left the title after issue 30. Now, there's a few things. Um, well, first of all, I just want to point out here, the main trouble that they actually ran into here was that Chase, Bobby Chase, was doing her absolute best to make everybody happy, which is an editor's job, and that's not an easy position to be in. You have two big egos coming from Dwayne McDuffie and even probably an even much bigger one coming from John Byrne, who at this point had already written Superman for DC, including the issue where he wrote that Superman and Big Barda made a sex tape together. Almost. Almost. Yes, that is a real thing, and yes, that is 100% what happens in that issue. Brainwashing be damned. John Byrne has an ego. Let's let's just get that out there. But um, some other things, that, that's the whole... That's the whole history of John Byrne leaving She-Hulk and how it ties into She-Hulk ceremony. Was somebody right or wrong? Who is to say when you're writing a fictional character who is getting her second series? Who is to say who is right or wrong about that? In the modern era, I would hope that they would have picked out a female writer, not just someone who was, you know, had a really big name because he just wrote Superman for many years at DC. Everybody was just being kind of an egotistical idiot, and Chase was trying to do her best, but she ended up quitting her job over it. So, uh, two things that you can look up yourself to check out. The cover to, well, no, let's start with Damage Control Volume 2, Number 3. This was written by Dwayne McDuffie as he wrote a number of the Damage Control issues. She-Hulk was on the Damage Control team at that point in time, and there were a number of panels in this issue number 3 of Volume 2 where they had She-Hulk making fun of John Byrne quitting over having shaving her legs. Uh, additionally, you can look up the cover for Sensational She-Hulk number 31, which I believe is the first issue that John Byrne is back after his departure from the series. And this issue heavily implies that the story after Sensational She-Hulk number 8, which is when he left the title, was all a dream. However, that is not true in canon. Again, big egos. <laughs> you also get the cover of issue number 31, where I believe... It is Byrne making fun of himself? I'm honestly not sure. It's kind of hard to tell. Um, because you get She-Hulk carrying him off and you get the back 
of what I'm guessing is uh, Bobby Chase. Um, and he's getting carried off by She-Hulk. And he's saying, hey, no fair. Renee, you said I could do anything. Oh, I guess it's whoever Renee is. Um, do anything on my first issue. And she says, put your ego back in its box, John. I'm already letting you get away with more than I probably should on the inside. So you get a lot of this, like, is John Byrne a good guy or is he not? Uh, it's kind of like Todd McFarlane. I, I, I kind of put him in there with Todd McFarlane where they have had some truly, truly fantastic careers elevating certain characters. McFarlane and Spider-Man was was legendary, you know. Um, but are they good people when it comes down to it? Were they fair? I don't know. Who's to say? I wasn't there at that time. Now I'd really like to wrap it up with some discussion on Wyatt Wingfoot. My point of all of this, as I've said a few times already in the podcast, is that we are going to see Wyatt Wingfoot in the MCU at some point. I would bet a lot of money on that. Why? He really is exactly the kind of character that they've been pulling from the sidelines and bringing into the MCU. Like Agatha Harkness, um, he, he he fits to a T of what they've been doing. He was created by Stanley and Jack Kirby in Fantastic Four number 50 in 1966, inspired by the Olympic athlete Jim, Jim Thorpe, who was a member of the indigenous Sac and Fox nation. Thorpe died in 1953, unfortunately, so it was a bit of time. You can see how his effects definitely stuck with Kirby and Lee after his death. His abilities, and now according to the official Marvel handbook, it says, Wyatt Wingfoot is a formidable hand-to-hand -hand combatant with considerable athletic skill. He is a brilliant tracker and skilled at training animals. Wingfoot is a fine horseman and motorcyclist and a skilled marksman. Um, in other terms, he has no superhuman powers. He is a superb athlete and a highly skilled tracker, animal trainer, horseman, motorcyclist, dancer, and marksman. He is an excellent hand-to-hand -hand combatant, um, but again, no actual superhuman powers. Two points I want to go over here are his relationship with Johnny Storm and then his relationship with Jennifer Walters and onward. So starting off with Johnny and the Fantastic Four, um, I have a quote here from his wiki page. After attending a mission school near Tulsa, Oklahoma, Wyatt Wingfoot entered Metro College, which is across the river from Manhattan. There, Wingfoot first met another incoming freshman, Johnny Storm, who, as the Human Torch, was a member of the team of superhuman adventurers known as the Fantastic Four. Storm and Wingfoot became roommates at Metro College's Northfield Dormitory and quickly became friends. Through time, uh, he gets involved with a lot of other heroes. Just a kind of a brief rundown of his earlier history. Um, let me see, was it really earlier history? Yeah, I guess earlier history. Um, you have when T'Challa as Black Panther first invited the Fantastic Four to visit his country. Johnny asked if Wyatt could come along and they enthusiastically agreed. To test himself in preparation of, of confronting Ulysses Claw, Black Panther attacked and trapped the Fantastic Four. However, the Panther underestimated Wingfoot since the latter had no superhuman powers. Wingfoot freed the Fantastic Four, who then confronted Panther. T'Challa became friends with the Fantastic Four and Wingfoot, all of whom helped the Panther in battling Claw soon afterwards. Wyatt then joined the Human Torch in his journey to free 
freed the Inhumans from their negative zone barrier. Wyatt Wingfoot became a good friend to the members of the Fantastic Four and participated in many of their adventures through the years, always proving himself to be a valuable ally. Although Johnny Storm did not complete his college studies at Metro College, Wingfoot finished his coursework there and graduated. Ha! Johnny, you loser! Sorry. <laughs> um, it also has been heavily hinted at that even by the creators of the various Fantastic Four series, uh, that Johnny and Wyatt might be more, or might have been at certain points more than friends, kind of in the way that, you know, there will be shared grave plots of, like, lifelong friends who lived together and never dated anybody else and shared a room, you know, that kind of thing. Bad example, but you get the point. Secret gaze. Which, if that was ever confirmed, I'd be, like, super down for that, because Johnny, I think, has made it pretty clear he is not straight. He is probably going to screw most things with legs. <clears throat> so now let's talk about Wyatt's relationship with Jen Walters and his life onward uh, beyond that. Um, so after, let's see, after the chief of his tribe, Silent Fox had been dead for several months. Oh, seven. I misread. The, Co the Kiwazi Council of Elders was about to make Wyatt Wingfoot the tribe's new chief. However, the coming of Terminus to destroy the earth and enslave humanity reminded Wyatt of his love for adventure, so he chose to decline the title of chief of his tribe, at least for the foreseeable future. Spending more time with the Fantastic Four, Wyatt grew closer with their newest member, She-Hulk, who was replacing the Thing at the time, and the two eventually started dating in Fantastic Four number 278. At some point, Wyatt and She-Hulk separated while he was still living with the team. Then we have the events of She-Hulk's ceremony, uh, where Wyatt ends up partying with She-Hulk at the end on good terms, being the tribe of his... Oh my gosh, being the chief of his people's tribe as they travel looking for a new place to live. Never apart from She-Hulk's life very long, Wingfoot occasionally appears by her side and they rekindled their intimate relationship over the holidays when She-Hulk stopped to visit Wyatt on her way to visit her father in Sensational She-Hulk number 36. A few weeks later, Wyatt returned to New York with her to attend some business in the city and stayed with her for some time in her apartment. For a time, Wyatt accompanied her on her adventures in her own She-Hulk series. Eventually, however, he felt the pull of responsibility and informed She-Hulk that he had to return home, that he was in fact leaving that night to return to his role as chief. She understood, and in a fourth wall break, it turned out that her comic had been cancelled anyway, so at the end of the day, they were all removed from the page and packed away in issue number 60, the final issue. In spite of their separation, Wyatt continued to occasionally reconnect not just with She-Hulk, both platonically and romantically, but with his friends at the Fantastic Four as well, especially Johnny Storm. He participated in an archaeology an dig near his reservation with both She-Hulk and Johnny, joined the team, joined them while the Fantastic Four was active, and partnered with the Fantastic Four at least once more when his tribe was in danger again, among other meetings. He continued his off-and-on relationship and romance with She-Hulk through the years, going on multiple dates with her, though ultimately their friendship did not or the relationship did not continue and they grew apart. Their once passionate romance evolving into a thing of the past, official in Marco Tamaki's Hulk Volume 4. Still, they considered a good... F they... <laughs> they considered him to be a good friend of the Fantastic Four, and Wyatt seemingly roomed with Johnny once again, attending Ben Grimm's bachelor party, and was present at the fairly private wedding of Ben Grimm and Alicia Masters, which was the Fantastic Four wedding special. Finally, I would like to wrap up this very long episode with a few fun facts about the great Wyatt Wingfoot. 
When Wyatt first became a supporting character of, of sensational She-Hulk, he was shown to have become aware of his nature as a fictional character and also broke the fourth wall. That starts in issue number 37. While the official handbook of the Marvel Universe A to Z update number one claims that Wyatt is six foot five, in Fantastic Four number 61, his height is stated to be six foot six. I don't know, fun fact. Wyatt not only has an unspecified degree from Metro College, but he briefly attended Columbia University in law as well as State University and has worked as both a school teacher and anthropologist, plus is familiar with Hopi and Paiute languages. Wyatt has been shown driving many vehicles, but only one of them is a real car, a 1965 prototype, the Ferrari Dino Berlin Berlinetta Special. Whew, what a mouthful. Finally, Wyatt does sometimes ride a gyrocruiser provided to him by the Wakandan Design Group. Wooey! And that wraps up today's episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey History. I hope you listened to as much of this as you could. Thank you for listening to whatever bits of it that you could. I always appreciate a view or two. Um, if you have any questions about any of the stuff that I have gone over today, I have done a buttload of research on everything that I talked about. So if you do have any questions on things I did not cover or things you would like clarification on, please, please ask me. I would love to um, use my knowledge that I have put in my brain for some reason. <laughs> Give me a reason. <laughs> Um, the next podcast episode, let's see, is going to be on Friday, potentially Saturday, the 3rd, potentially 4th of December. Wow. Um, and that's going to be covering episode 3 of Hawkeye, which is coming on Wednesday, the 1st of December, along with Comic Book Day. Uh, I'll also be talking about my comic book picks stuff in the news, which I'm sure there will be plenty of news to discuss at that point in time. Um, and whatever else I feel like doing at that point, because I know I haven't discussed Young Justice in a little bit, um, and that's really picked up, so I, sh I, I should do that. Um, I think I talked about the Doom Patrol finale. I think I did that. <laughs> um, but in any case, there's going to be plenty of stuff to talk about in the next episode, so we're going to have two episodes this week, and I'm very excited to do so. Um, again, feel free to reach out to me in any way, and if questions, comments, concerns, anything like that. I always appreciate your support, be it listening, sharing, or subscribing, whatever you can do. There is never expectation, but I always, always appreciate it. Um, we are heading into the first week of December here. The nights are getting longer and the days are getting shorter, so be sure to carry a flashlight, leave your front porch light on before you head off to work, um, and make sure your feral pets in your neighborhoods are taken care of for the cold weather. Have an excellent week, stay sweaty, and don't be a dick. <laughs>